Well, if you missed it this past Wednesday night, we had our third annual Ash Wednesday service. And if you did miss it, I want to encourage you to come to those kinds of services. You know, throughout the course of the year, we have some kind of unusual and unique services from time to time. And one of the things that I've at least discovered, and I think those of us who, who attend and who participate in those services discover, is that they're actually some of the most uniquely moving and awesome services of the year. And it was a wonderful way for us to kick off the season of Lent, which if you're not familiar with the season of Lent, it's this. It's celebrated, it's that season of the Christian calendar year that Christians all over the world and here too celebrate as we seek as purposefully as we can, as intentionally as we can, as viscerally as we possibly can to enter into the sufferings of Jesus Christ and even into the death of Jesus Christ by which Christ paid the debt that all of us owe to Almighty God. And maybe you're thinking, all right, so why do you owe a debt to Almighty God? Or why do I, Tom, owe a debt to Almighty God? And the answer to that is really simple, actually, conceptually. It's that God made us to live for Him, and we've taken the lives that He made to be lived for Himself, and we've lived them for who? Well, for us, and for others, and for other things, and for all of the above. We've deprived Him of what we owe, which creates a debt that this God in grace has paid. And he's paid it through the person of Jesus Christ. And so Lent really is a journey into the sufferings, or maybe even more so, into the death of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see today is that it's not just a journey into the death of Jesus. It's a journey into all kinds of death for us as well. And here's why. Because it's a season of repentance. It's a season of self-examination. It's a time when you and I look at ourselves in the mirror, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we say, okay, Lord, just one thing at a time. But I want you to reveal to me the things that are alive and, and, and growing in my life that Jesus died for. Because I'm in His sufferings right now. I'm traveling toward His death right now. I'm dealing with this as viscerally as I possibly can, and I'm realizing, hey, well, wait a minute. There are things in my life that Jesus died for, and here's what I need to do. I need to own that reality, put it on the table, and say, Jesus died for this. And so here's what I need to stop doing with this. I need to stop pretending as, this, as if this is not in my life. I need to stop hiding it. I need to stop sheltering it. I need to stop protecting it. I need to tear down the fences and walls that I built all around it. I need to stop living and letting my whole life and everybody else that's involved in my life revolve around it. I need to stop watering it. I need to stop fertilizing it. I need to stop cultivating it. Good grief, it is like a vine that is growing wild in my life and it's not a beautiful vine. It's like those vines that grow up a tree and choke it to death. And now I'm putting on a little more fertilizer. I'm putting a little fence around it so the rabbits can't get in and eat away. Wait a minute, hang on a second, because I'm traveling with Jesus, the Son of God, who though I am completely and utterly undeserving and that I've taken my life that's His, and I've said, yeah, no, no, I'm going to live like it's mine. Nevertheless, to invite me into the love relationship of the Father. He is suffering, and He dies for me. Okay, so here's what I need to do. I need to say, Jesus died for this, and I need to die to this. That's Lent. And you say, well, Lent doesn't sound much like going to Disney World then, Tom, because I, you know, I mean... But wait a minute, let's think about that for a second. 
I think most of us here today have lived long enough to realize that, you know, sin comes promising one thing and delivering another. It looks really beautiful, does it not? I mean, when you go all the way back to the garden, which is where Matt took us at the beginning of this service rightly, and you see the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's nasty, right? It's just, it's gross looking. I mean, you look at it and you realize, good grief, who would ever want to eat that? Certainly if you eat this, you will surely die. Well, you will, but it's beautiful. Oh, it looks amazing. Clearly, it's going to bring me a new kind of life with all kinds of different capacities. That's the lie. And what does it bring? Death. So it promises life. It brings death. It looks really beautiful. In fact, in its heart of hearts, it is absolute ugliness. It beckons to us and says, come and follow me out here into the land of freedom. And we're like, I'm all about freedom. And we go running out and we discover that it's the land of regret that it's the land of slavery, that it's the land of addiction. You know what that is? It's a crazy vine that's choking out your soul and your life and your relationships and everything else. You're like, yeah, it doesn't sound like going to Disney. Forget Disney. Disney's a distraction. Disney's a diversion. It's kind of fun. I'm not going to lie, but, but it's a distraction. It's a diversion. It's also the hottest place on the planet and everyone in the world is there at the same time. So anyway, it's very expensive. But other than that, it's amazing. What is Lent offering you? Life! How does it end? You're like, it ends in the death and burial of Jesus. No! It ends with an empty tomb. That's what we're moving toward. That's how it ends, and not just for Jesus. That's how it ends for me, and that's how it ends for you. And I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in community with my brothers and sisters, step forward and courageously say, you know what? I am so moved by the reality that Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world, suffered and died for this thing that I'm going to finally own and do something about it. I'm going to die to it. And I may need to get some counseling, and I might need to get in a support group, and I might need all kinds, and I'm going to take three steps forward and two steps back at times, and I'm going to... But this can't stand in my life anymore. So that's Lent. And it is a wonderful opportunity to die so that you might authentically live. So we begin our journey into the death of Jesus where Jesus began His journey, and that is with what? It's with His 40 days out in the wilderness. So there are 40 weekdays included in this season of Lent. It corresponds to this 40-day journey into deprivation. It's why people deprive themselves of things. I'm not going to eat chocolate. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I mean, what am I doing? I'm voluntarily depriving myself of something. Why? Because Jesus voluntarily deprived Himself in the end of absolutely everything, and He did that for me, and I want to identify with that so that when I feel and experience that deprivation, I think about Him. And I appreciate all that He's done for me. And I'm moved by it. So we pick up our study today with Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and His temptation by the tempter. We find that story in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, where Matthew says this. He says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, which just begs the question then of led up into the wilderness by the Spirit, but from where? Well, from down by the Jordan River, where there's water, and where something amazing happened. 
Jesus goes down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is. He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And what happens in that story? You know that story. We've seen it not too long ago. What happens is God himself speaks audibly and in a way that not just Jesus can hear, but his voice thunders from the heavens and everybody there hears the benediction of God over his son. This is my beloved son. He is the divine son of God in whom I am well pleased, but that's not all. It's more from the heavens. The spirit of God descends. He's described as having descended like a dove and he lands upon the Lord. He's identified and ordained by God the Father in the audible thundering voice that everyone hears. He's anointed by God the Holy Spirit by this dove-like appearance that everyone sees. And what Matthew is saying is that then that Jesus was led up by that Holy Spirit from that Jordan River experience out into the wilderness, which is what? It's a place that is hot and that is dry and that is brown and that is dead. It's a place of scarcity. It's a place of deprivation. And not just of food and water and all of the things that you need to survive physically, but in this case for Jesus, and you need to feel this from his perspective, it's a place of scarcity and deprivation from the experience of his father as well. It's like he's let out there and left alone. The only voice of God, if you will, that Jesus hears out in the wilderness is the whistling of the wind. The only thing from heaven that Jesus sees, okay, are the vultures. Forty days, no food. He's withering away. His eyes look sunken. His cheekbones are protruding. He's having to wear a belt. Jesus was led up by that Spirit from that Jordan River experience into that place, that wilderness. And here's why, to be tempted by the devil. And you say, well, why in the world would the Lord lead him out there to be tempted by the devil? Well, it's certainly not just to show us how to deal with the tempter and temptation. That's part of it. We'll see that. That's helpful. But here's why. So that he could succeed where we fail. He knew that we'd be in the wilderness. He knew that we would be tempted. He knew that we would fall. And not only does he succeed where we fail, he then, and we'll see it as we travel through, dies for our failures. So that what? We can continue to cultivate sin in our lives and you know, pour a little water on that. You know what? This is a great little fence. It's keeping all the rabbits out. And No, 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 so that we can look at it and go, good grief, I think I hate this because my love for Jesus is so strong. So then that Jesus was led up by that Spirit from that Jordan River experience, which was amazing, out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then Matthew says that after fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, and not just hungry, but weak. And so that's when the tempter, who up until now has been just lurking in the shadows, content to wait. Oh, I'll just wait, I'll just wait, I'll just day 38, day 39, day 40. Okay, I think this is my moment. He waits until Jesus, it seems, is at his weakest, most vulnerable moment. And then he comes out of the shadows and he speaks and he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, temptation number one, well then... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And what I don't think that the tempter is saying here is, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Because I'm wondering, I'm doubting. 
Do a magic trick, Jesus. Turn these stones into loaves of bread and prove that, in fact, you're God's son. Listen, the voice from heaven has thundered. That's a useless attack. Jesus knows who he is. I think what he's saying more accurately is, since you are the son of God, and, and then just follow the rest. And since, well, Jesus, you're starving. And since, I mean, if we're just honest about this, you're starving because your father has led you out here and deprived you of food. And since, incidentally, you're starving because he's led you out here and deprived you of food, and food is necessary for you to actually live. And since, incidentally, also at the baptism, you were proclaimed not just to be the Son of God, not just anointed by the Spirit, you're the anointed one, that's great, but you were also proclaimed through the Spirit by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And since, Jesus, you and I both know that lambs that are sacrificial, that atone for, that cover over, that satisfy the debt for sin, if you will, are never dying out in the wilderness. They die in Jerusalem. Clearly, it's not the will of God for you to die in the wilderness. So then, since, 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 let me add it all up for you. Then, why don't you just do for yourself what you're able to do for yourself? I mean, why are you waiting for your father to provide you for, with something that you're fully capable of providing for yourself? And by the way, have you considered, Jesus, that maybe that's exactly what this whole experience is about? He's proclaimed you to be the divine son of God. He's anointed you visibly in front of a whole crowd of people. By his spirit, he has sent you out into a place, don't miss it, of deprivation, perhaps for you to begin to exercise your powers. So then why are you waiting? He's probably up there going, good grief, I thought you'd figure this out on day three, and here we are at day 40. Since you are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And man, is he a brilliant adversary. And you do kind of see the way that he works, don't you? So what does he do? He waits until you're at your weakest point. Okay, now hang on a second. When is that exactly? It is when you are most hungry for something. That's it. You're like, I'm hungry for companionship. Okay, yeah. He'll just wait until you're hungriest. I'm hungry for love. Yeah, he'll just wait until you're hungriest. I'm hungry for joy. Yeah, that's fine. He'll wait and let you experience more sorrow in the process. Building your resentments. I'm hungry for affirmation. I'm hungry for respect. I'm hungry for recognition. I'm hu- what are you hungry for? The story is begging you to give the answer to that question, is it not? And he waits until you are absolutely at your most hungry point, which is when you're most vulnerable. And then he says, I think this is my moment. And he steps into your life. And then what does he do? He begins to gather up all of the admittedly God-ordained circumstances of your life. And I think we need to own that part of the story. Jesus is, in fact, led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Jesus is, in fact, deprived of what is necessary for life by God. And that's where we find ourselves at times, too. Even in the midst of a city, it's wilderness, isn't it? And we're hungry. Really hungry. He steps in then. He gathers up all of the admittedly God-ordained circumstances of your life. You can't argue with that. And then what does he do? He constructs and arranges them and then interprets them for you in such a way as to make God look bad and you look abandoned. That's it. He says, you, know, you want to know why you're starving? It's really not that difficult. It's because God's not faithful. You want to know why you're suffering? 
Seriously, like, I mean, if you watched Sesame Street, you ought to be able to do the math on this, okay? It's because God's uncaring. You want to know why you're lonely, why you feel so abandoned, why you're withering in soul or maybe in body or maybe in both. It's because God does not actually love you. And then He gives you the solution to the problem that He, with all of His lies, but using legitimate circumstances, has given to you, which is what? Well, good grief, clearly you can't trust God to take care of you in this regard. What you need to do is take your life into your own hands and go satisfy your appetites any way you can. Go! Figure it out! And here's the thing about our appetites. They're the most powerful parts of us. They just are. That's why we do things that in our minds we know are actually stupid. Like we're able to look at the road we're on and we're able to see where the road is going to end and we keep driving down the road. You know what? It ends in a cliff. Hey, you know what? I don't care right now. Okay. Okay. That's why we all do things that in our hearts we know are wrong. Don't we? You know, you know that this is wrong. Yeah, I know. You don't even need to remind. I, I don't care right now. I'm overwhelmed with my appetites. That's particularly true for our instinctual appetites. Appetites for food and sex to be specific. And so then if you think about what the evil one is doing with Jesus is he's coming to him with the single most powerful appetite that Jesus as a human being has, which is the appetite for food. It is to eat and not for pleasure, but for survival. And he's tempting him with that. And again, as we're going to see here in just a second, Jesus succeeds where we have failed in the pursuit of satisfaction of far lesser appetites. And like none of us are worried about starving. Far lesser appetites than that. Which is amazing. And in Lent, we'll see all that he suffered and did ending in his death for all of our many failures. And so then what is Lent calling us to do? It's to love Him more than our failures. It's to love Him more than the things we're cultivating. It's to love Him more. It's to say, good grief, oh, hang, hang on a second. That's a paradigm shift for me. Because this, wait a minute, Jesus died for this. And I, I need to die too, this. This, this needs to stop. This needs, this needs to end. And notice how Jesus succeeds, because it's His mastery of the Word. Again and again, He just refers the evil one to the Word. Verse 4, Matthew says that Jesus answered Satan. He says, it is written. The question is where in the Bible? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And what's written? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Which means that Jesus is resolved to trust God's word even when his life hangs in the balance and even when his circumstances can in fact be arranged in such a way as to at least call into question whether or not the Lord is trustworthy. And so then, since that doesn't work, Matthew says in verse 5, that then the devil took Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem. And I think what's happening here and in the next temptation is it's through a vision that they do this. I don't think he literally travels to the city of Jerusalem or in the next temptation literally travels to a great and high mountain that is so great that from it you can see all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. Okay, there is no such physical mountain. But that doesn't mean he doesn't see it by means of vision. That's the only way he can see it. And in this particular temptation that we'll see now, this is a temptation that Jesus can experience by means of this vision and go, hey, you know what, that's an excellent idea, and then literally go do it. 
So the devil then takes Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is almost certainly a reference to the corner of the temple mount that overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And in that day, overlooks pretty much the whole of the city of Jerusalem. And therefore then pretty much the whole of the city of Jerusalem can look up and see him there is the idea. And certainly the religious establishments of the Jew that, Jews that ran the temple would have seen this. That's important. It says, then the devil took Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, temptation number two, well, then throw yourselves down from here. Just jump off. Do that. And again, he's not saying, if you are, then prove it by doing it. He's saying, no, 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 since you are the Son of God, and since you're starving, and since it's been 40 days, and since your father put you out here, and since your father has denied you of everything that you need to live, and since you're about to die, and since all of that draws into question legitimately, wink, wink, Jesus, the trustworthiness of your father, good grief, man, you're at the beginning of your ministry here, and it's not starting very well. 40 days out here, come on. Make him prove that he's trustworthy. You're wondering how to do that, Jesus. You know what? I've got a great idea. Well, let's just go to the pinnacle of the temple and jump off because since you like the Bible, Jesus, let me cite it for you. For it is written, I'll even use your language, in Psalm 91. So now the evil one is quoting Scripture. It is written that God will command his angels concerning you and that on their hands, meaning on the hands of these angels, they will do what? They will bear you up, or literally, it's language of resurrection which is actually important. They will raise you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus, make him do that by jumping off and then two really amazing things will happen. One, you'll know that you can trust him. Two, this is just sort of a side ancillary benefit for this. Everybody's going to see it, including all of these guys that are the religious leaders of the Jews who you and I know are going to oppose and then crucify you if they see the heavens part and the angels descend and they catch you in midair. I mean, you know, like, how can they crucify you after that? Their only choice, line up behind you. He's always trying to get him to avoid the cross. Just like he's always trying to get us to avoid our cross by which we die to sin that we might live to him. We die, yeah, to live. <laughs> it's not a bad arrangement, actually. It's a good trajectory. It's liberating. It's freeing. But what's the problem with this temptation? Well, there are several, but, but perhaps the biggest problem is that the evil one's interpretation of Psalm 91 does not square with Jesus' interpretation of Psalm 91. For him, this is a reference to the morning of the resurrection. The angels will roll away the stone. They will pick him up. They will raise him up in that sense. And so then again, we see how the evil one works. So he not only steps into our lives in our greatest moment of vulnerability and gathers up all of the circumstances of our lives and then interprets them in such a way as to make God look bad and us look abandoned, but he comes to us with the scriptures too. Scriptures that would call us to sacrifice. Scriptures that would call us to take up our cross. Scriptures that would call us to lay things down in favor of far greater things. Scriptures that would call us through obedience to actually become free of the vines that we cultivate and fertilize and water and allow to overwhelm our soul and destroy us. And he says, you know what? I don't think it really means that. Actually, I think if you look at it this way, I can help you escape all of that. Because that will be good for... No. Because I'm out to destroy you. 
And again, Jesus succeeds where we have failed. We'll see that. And then He suffers and dies for all of our failures. But not so that we can then keep on failing. Oh, well, good. He's got that covered. No. So that we can be so struck by the love of God who in His Son did all of this for me that we can look at that which is choking out our lives and say, okay, now that needs to come to an end. That needs to stop. And again, he succeeds through his mastery of the Word. Jesus says, verse 7, to Satan, again it is written in Deuteronomy 6.16 this time, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And now having failed twice, here comes his final up to bat. Okay, verse 8, Matthew says this, he says, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him by means of a vision all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to him, temptation number three, all these, meaning all these kingdoms and all of their glory that I just showed to you, I, Satan, will give to you, Jesus, if you, Jesus, will turn your back on your father for just a few seconds. It's not going to take a long, I'm really not asking you more much here, and fall down on your knees and worship me instead. And so, you know, maybe you read that in your personal worship this week and you thought, well, good grief, who gave him the authority to do that? Like, who gave the world? world in some sense to the evil one because that guy should be fired right i mean that's just a terrible idea who did that well who alone could do that oh boy that's an uncomfortable suggestion isn't it only the lord could do that and he said well good grief why would he do that for his glory it's really the answer when you rewind the tape all the way back to the beginning of the heavens and the earth and you ask yourself, why did he even create? I mean, like, what was the point of the heavens and the earth? Because here's what we think. We think the point of the heavens and the earth, let's just be honest, a little moment of transparency, is us. This is all here for us. This is all about us. God's even here for us. He, he waits on us. He takes care of us. He rescues us. He's, you know, he's here to facilitate our lives and, and our this and our... And it's like, and it's, we are so, all of us in our brokenness, so egocentric. And it's not about us at all. He's done great things for us. But we are the choir. We're the worshipers, and He is the object of our worship. He created the heavens and the earth and everything and everyone in them for the purpose of manifesting to the praise of His glory by His people for forever and ever and ever all of the attributes of His glory. And I think when we're honest and we just kind of work it through, we realize, okay, so God is good. All right, so here's the deal. I wouldn't even know what good is, and neither would you if we didn't know evil. Wouldn't you agree? You wouldn't know joy without sorrow. You wouldn't know deliverance without peril. You wouldn't know forgiveness and, and the relief of that and the joy that it brings without something to be forgiven of. You wouldn't know grace and mercy without judgment and wrath. You wouldn't know healing without sickness. You wouldn't know life without death. You wouldn't know hate or love without hate. It just keeps going. God has ordained for a time that the evil one have some sway in this world. Martin Luther very brilliantly said, yes, there is a devil, but he is God's devil. And that doesn't mean he's the Lord's emissary to go off to do the Lord's will. But what it does mean that in the end, God in his brilliance is going to so redeem all of the evil in this world that even the evil one himself will realize that everything that he tried to do has been undone by God in Christ and ended up actually serving the purpose that the Lord had 
for the whole of the created order. So again, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world by means of this vision and all of their glory. And then he said to him, temptation number three, all these I, Satan, will give to you, Jesus, but only if you, Jesus, will turn your back on your father for just a few seconds, not a lot of time here, and fall down on your knees and worship me. Because Jesus, you and I both know that I mean, your father has promised you the world and all the kingdoms and all of its glory, and he's also proclaimed you already to be what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. You and I both know how it goes for lambs. Not so well, actually. And I, at least, as a benevolent Lord, think that's asking a bit much. So I'm, I'm willing to make a different offer to you. Seems a little easier. You can have it all now. All I'm asking is a few seconds of you on your knees before me, and we're good. It's remarkable. The Creator worshiping the created creature. And as we'll see, Jesus again succeeds where we have failed, worshiping created things as opposed to the creator and the giver of those things. And then he dies for our failures. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. Hey, you know what? I I see the debt. I'm going to cover it, (laughs) even though it's a personal affront to me. It's okay. My love is great enough to do that. And what that ought to do is transform us in here and make us look at those things differently and go, wow, that's not so attractive to me anymore. And once again, he succeeds through the word. Jesus says to him, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, this time in Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve, no matter what your circumstances might suggest or what the cost might be. And then we read that the devil left Jesus, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. However, in Luke's account, it says all of that, but it also says that the devil left Jesus but only to return at a more opportune time. So then you start looking through his life going, when was that? And we'll see it when we get to Good Friday. And we listen to the voice of the evil one coming out of the mouths of the people surrounding Christ at the peak of his suffering on the cross. And what do they say? Because here's the quote. You ready? If you are the Son of God. Does that sound familiar? Do what? Avoid the suffering. Come down off of the cross. It's always about avoiding the cross. And that's not just true for Jesus. It's true for us too. But what does the cross give way to? You're like the grave. Okay, yeah, but, and then, what does the cross give way to? This is how the Lord works. It gives way to resurrection unto a far, 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 infinitely greater life. It's amazing. And so with all that in mind, I have, and it's good that you're seated, because I have seven questions for you. And I want you to consider them. So question number one, what are you hungry for right now? I mean, really, like, what are you hungry for? Be honest. Is it companionship? Is it love? Is it recognition? Is it respect? Is it significance? Is it whatever? I mean, what is it? Relief. What are you hungry for right now? Because it seems to me, at least, that that is a pretty good clue as to where maybe you're vulnerable right now to the temptations of the evil one. So think about that. Secondly, how are you seeking to satisfy your appetites and are you seeking to satisfy them in ways that you know are outside of the will of God for you? 
They violate His wisdom. They violate His Word. They violate the commandments that He gives to you, not to bind you up, but to keep you out of the land of regret. You know, one of the things I read this week that I thought was really good, this guy said that God decrees bread or stones for us, not according to the appetites of our bodies or of our egos, but according to which one in that moment provides the best nourishment for our souls. Okay, that's genius. And it's right on. Thirdly, how is the evil one gathering up all of the admittedly God-ordained circumstances of your life right now and arranging them very carefully and quite persuasively before you and in such a way as to suggest to you that God is not good and that you are all alone? He's abandoned you. Fourthly, in what ways are you asking God to prove His faithfulness to you before you believe that actually He is in fact faithful? Fifthly, how well do you know God's Word by which you are to live and by which you expose the lies of the evil one? I mean, Solomon comes to us and he says, let me give you wisdom. Here's wisdom. Store up the Word of God in your heart. Why would you store the Word of God up in your heart? So that when you're out in the wilderness and the evil one comes tempting... And he gathers up your circumstances and arranges them in such a way as to make God look bad and you look abandoned. It's there for you. And the Spirit can reach down into the well of your heart in which you have stored up the truth of His Word and bring it up to your mind. And you can recognize, wait a minute, this, this voice is not the voice of my Savior. This voice is the voice of the evil one because I know the voice of my Savior. It's the one that's consistent with His Word. Sixthly, how is the evil one gathering up God's Word and interpreting it for you in such a way as to relieve you from the burden of the Word that is designed to bring you to life? And then lastly, what sin do you need to look straight in the face and by the power of the Holy Spirit and in community with your Christian brothers and sisters say, you know what? Jesus died for this and I need to stop indulging it. I need to stop pretending it isn't there. I need to realize that I can't deny the fact that this is a wild vine that is growing in my heart and in my soul and it's affecting every aspect of my life. Or if it isn't yet, it will. Like I know the road I'm on and it does in fact go off a cliff and I need to get help or whatever it takes. But what is it that you need to say, you know what, Jesus died for this, so just put it on the table and now I'm going to die to it because that's not going to lead you out into the land of regret and death. It's going to lead lead you out from it. (laughs) And it ends how? Not in Good Friday, but in Easter. It ends in resurrection unto a new and freer and different kind of life. Okay? God's designs for you are good. He doesn't come to take. He comes giving. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, uh, for the Savior that we have. We thank You, God, that even though we have used and spent our lives in all kinds of ways that, um, uh, that manifest a worship of, of somebody and something and some things other than You. Uh, Lord, because You are love, You don't just love. It's who You are, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the divine dance. 
But God, you looked upon us and all of our rebellion and all the ways we've, we've robbed you in some sense of what you're due. The glory that, that we were made to give. And you came after us in your Son. You paid for us a debt we could not. You capture us by that expression of your love. And you invite us into the dance. Into the relationship. Lord, we praise you for that. And I pray that that that's what we do. Confessing our sin before you. Laying down the ineptitude with which we run our own lives. Being honest about the fact that we cultivate things that are not bringing us life. and, And we know it. And they need to be dealt with. Capture us, Lord, by the story of the sufferings and death of Jesus. Let that overwhelm and overtake us in such a way where we just can't play around anymore with Him or with us. And instead, run to the One who delivers and in whom alone is life. Life and death, burial and then resurrection. I pray that that would be our experience in Jesus' name. Amen.